so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. the 1990s, children in Christian homes have been captivated and inspired by Bob the Tomato and Larry the Cucumber. Phil Vischer, who created the characters, has had a massive influence all over the world through his stories. Let's listen in as he gives insights to parents on how to form the moral imagination of their kids. Hi kids, I'm Bob the Tomato. Oh, perhaps you know me better as a somewhat uptight British asparagus. But I've only got 15 minutes, and I have a whole lot to say, so I'm going to knock this off. All right. We all want good kids. I mean, we say it all the time. Be good. Be a good boy. Be a good girl. Be good for your mom. Be good for your grandma. Be good for your babysitter. There are other things we want for our kids, like we want them to be moderately successful and and at least reasonably good-looking and somewhat healthy, and it would be nice if they were clean, But good really trumps the rest of them. He's very clean. Of course, he's in prison. (laughs) We want good kids. I'm here to talk to you about how to pass on morality to our kids. But before I get into that, we need to talk about the British Empire. Okay. At one point, the British ruled one quarter of the world's population. One out of every four people on earth was under the governance of an island off the coast of France. And the British Empire, in the beginning, it wasn't really about changing morality or reshaping the world. At the beginning, it was just about economics. It was about profiting from the rest of the world. But through the 1700s, there was uh, quite a revival in England, and the English public in general became much more Christian and particularly much more concerned about morals through the work of the Wesleys and the Whitfields of the world. And they started looking around the empire and discovering that some of their subject peoples did not have the same moral standards that they had, and and they got concerned. In particular, they started looking at India. Now, India was a huge population, very diverse, lots of different beliefs, very, very religious, and there were some things that the English noticed about the Indian people that really concerned them, things like, for example, female infanticide. In some areas in, in India, it was very expensive to marry off your daughters, and so some of the upper-class uh, Indians decided it would be better just not to have daughters, and if they had a baby girl, they would just kill it. And then the British said, you can't do that. And there was also a class in India of assassin priests. And these were holy men who would meet travelers on the road and then befriend them and then walk with them for a while and then at an opportune moment, kill them. There was one assassin priest who claimed he had personally killed more than 900 travelers. And the British said, you can't do that. But the, one, the thing that got the British the most of all was a practice called sati. And in this practice in some areas of of, uh, India, 
If a man died, his wife had an obligation to, at his funeral, throw herself onto his funeral pyre and burn up. Now, some wives weren't all that wild about that idea, and if that was the case, then it was, it was the obligation of the crowd to pick her up and throw her onto the funeral fire. Thousands of women died this way in India, and the British said, well, you can't do that. So the British went to them and said, you need to stop all these things. And the Indians responded by saying, why? And the British said, well, because they're wrong. And the Indians said, according to who? And the British said, well, 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 according to the Bible and to the Christian God. To which the Indians rightly said, you know we're not Christians, right? The British discovered that moral frameworks sit on top of spiritual assumptions. The spirituality of the Indians was so different than the British that it wasn't that the Indians didn't have morality, but it was a radically different morality than the British. And the British decided, well, we, we need to do something. We, the only way to affect their morality, if it really is on top, built on top of their spiritual framework, is we have to change their spiritual framework. We need to make India Christian. So starting in the early 1800s, they sent waves of British missionaries to India to preach the gospel all over India, to convert India. India to Christianity. Uh, their courts banned some of these practices. All of these things really ticked off the Indians. And it came to a head in 1857 when several units of the Indian army rebelled, mutinied against the British, and started killing their British overlords. Fighting went on, spread across India, went on for nine months. Thousands of British were killed, men, women, and children. And, and in, in uh, retaliation, thousands of Indians were killed. In fact, the leaders of the mutiny were grabbed by the British soldiers and strapped to the front of cannons and blown into smithereens. It was a brutal, brutal bloodbath. When it was over, in 1858, the Queen of England, Queen uh, Victoria, said, from heretofore, she said, this is how she said it, heretofore, the government of England will not attempt to change the beliefs or traditions of its people. They gave up. They realized you can't change morality without changing the underlying spiritual premises of a people. And doing that was very, very hard. You see, picture like a Christmas tree, okay? The decorations, the ornaments are the moral beliefs. They are held up by the tree. What is the tree? It's the spiritual foundation. It's what's behind, behind them. But think about morals, okay? Is it right or wrong to eat animals, is it right or wrong to eat people? Is it right or wrong to kill animals for sport? Is it right or wrong to kill people for sport? None of these questions can be answered scientifically. No scientist has ever run out of a lab holding a beaker saying, Eureka, I've figured it out. It's okay to eat animals but not people. Look, the solution turned blue. That's never happened. 
Morality does not derive from science. It derives from spiritual beliefs about the world. Why am I here? Where did I come from? Who made me? What is my purpose on earth? These are the questions that we have to answer before we can derive a moral framework. And these are not physics questions. They're metaphysics questions. They're spiritual questions. So I was uh, telling stories with VeggieTales for about 10 years. And we were retelling Bible stories, and we were uh, teaching Christian values, and we were teaching Christian morals. And it was all very good. And it was very valuable. But I started wondering if maybe it wasn't enough. If, if maybe, I mean, I actually started to look back at one point, and I thought, am, am I persuading kids to behave Christianly without teaching them Christianity? And I got concerned about that. Because, you know, some kids can do it. Some kids, you say, hey, hey, shape up and fly straight. And they say, okay, look at me. And other kids, it's really hard and they can't do it. But that's not the whole point of Christianity. The point of Christianity is that none of us are good enough, except for the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. So I realized I needed to go to help kids. I needed to go deeper. After VeggieTales, I launched something called What's in the Bible, and it was an attempt to answer all the big questions, to basically take this and say, what is this? Where did it come from? Who wrote it? Why can we trust it? What difference does it make in my life? And I decided to go all the way through the Bible with kids from Genesis to Revelation. And I got, I'm getting to Genesis, and there's a hinge point in Genesis. There's something, uh, there's a point in Genesis that changes everything, changes world history, changes the rest of the Bible. And it's this simple line, sin entered the world. And I thought, okay, that is so huge for kids that are wondering if, if God loves me and he's all powerful, why is everything so messed up? If God is all loving and he can do anything, why are there bullies at school? If God is all loving and he can do anything, why is grandma sick? Sin entered the world. It's not enough to give kids words. If we're building ultimately moral imagination, which comes from a spiritual foundation, we need a visual language for this stuff. How could I visually represent sin entering the world? And then I thought about Star Trek. There's an episode in, I think it's the second season of Star Trek, the original called Trouble with Tribbles. And in, in this episode, Trouble with Tribbles, there are these little creatures, they're called Tribbles, and they show up on the USS Enterprise, and they're small, and they're furry, and they're almost cute, except they reproduce like mad. And before long, the Enterprise is literally drowning in Tribbles. And I thought, that's it. That's my metaphor for sin. So I'm animating what's in the Bible. We have, we have Adam and Eve, and they have to make this decision. Do I trust God? Do I trust the snake? Do I trust God? Do I trust the snake? We're going to trust the snake. Terrible idea. And then we have two little sin tribbles fall into the world, and sin entered the world. And they're kind of gray and grimy looking, and they yell. They go, ah! You know, they're kind of annoying and irritating. And one of them sticks to Adam and the other one sticks to Eve. And now they have the stain of sin on them. And what's the problem with that? Well, God is perfect. Sin can't be near God. And because Adam and Eve now are stained with sin, they can't be near God either. They have to leave the garden. 
So this sets up the whole rest of the Bible because sin just multiplies like tribbles. There's more and more sin, more and more people, more and more sin until finally God has to drown the sin to try to start over with his creation. But even after that, sin comes back, more and more people, more and more sin. And now for a kid, you can establish what's the whole rest of the Bible about. The whole rest of the Bible is God's rescue plan. The whole rest of the Bible is God saving us. Now, if you're a kid, the obvious question is, from what? Zombies? Sharks? No, from sin and what it does to us. Well, what does it do to us exactly? Now, now we're getting into the meat of the gospel, and it's important to try to visualize this for kids so they have a visual language to remember this sort of thing. So God is trying to save us from three things, the stain of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. So the stain of sin, we're stained with sin. We can't be near God until this is washed off. So we show a man and a woman in a car wash and God is literally washing them off. And now they're clean and they can be with God again. Okay, that's the stain of sin. The power of sin, sin whispers in our ears. We show a little, my, my kids started calling them sin puffs, um, which I believe is the breakfast cereal they serve in hell. So there's, so there's a little sin ball, sin puff on Adam's shoulder and there's a and they're whispering, and they whisper in your ear, and the more you sin, the louder they get, and the more you want to sin, you know, hit them again, hit them again, do it your way. That's always the best idea, you know, again and again, and it gets louder and louder, but God wants to help you reduce the power of sin. So a little robot arm comes down from heaven and, and wraps duct tape around the little sin puff's mouth, and he's, he's quieter, and then another one comes down and wraps some more, and he's even quieter, and then finally he just falls off. Sin loses its grip on you. And guess what, kids? This doesn't happen all at once. It's a process. It takes time, and it has a big name. It's called sanctification. Now they have a visual language for sanctification. But there's three things. God wants to save you from the stain of sin, from the power of sin, and from the presence of sin. Because even if you've been clean from sin, and even if sin has lost its power over you, we still live in a world that is drowning in sin. And living in a world that is drowning in sin hurts. Every day, it hurts. So God wants to fix that. And when it is time, in the fullness of time, God is going to make everything new. Now we're at the end of the Bible, and we show the Bible starts out with a garden and ends with a garden city. And this garden city is completely clean from sin. There is no hurting. There are no bullies. There is no sickness. There is no pain. It's us living together with God the way it was supposed to be in the very beginning. Okay, does that actually work? Can kids get a spiritual foundation to build a moral imagination on top of? Well, I was in Iowa the other day, two weeks ago, at a Bible conference speaking, and a guy came up to me um, after I talked and said, I got to tell you a story. He said, I got to tell you about my my four-year-old son. He said, we got a four-year-old boy, and, you know, he's having some issues because, you know, he's he's a four-year-old boy. Um, and so he has a little sister. His little sister has just learned how to walk, and she'll be toddling around the house. And whenever she comes by and he thinks we're not looking, she'll just, he'll just go <clears throat> and send her flying. <laughs> Says we didn't know what to do. But we watched your new series with all the every, that explained everything. We watched the whole series together, the What's in the Bible series. And he said, the other day I was in the kitchen uh, with my daughter, and she's walking around, you know, and my son comes in, he doesn't see me, doesn't realize I'm in there, so I'm just going to watch and see what happens. And he says, four-year-old son walked up to her, 
stopped, turned and looked at his shoulder and said, no sin, I'm not going to pop her. (laughs) And turned and walked away. And the dad looked at me and went, ah! And I looked at him and went, ah! (laughs) It worked! This is a four-year-old kid who now had a visual language for sin, for who he was in the world, why he wanted to do bad things sometimes, and what he had to do to resist doing bad things for God's plan for his life. Okay, the world today is trying to decorate a tree with morals without a tree. The world is hanging morals in the air and hoping they'll just stay there somehow. We still have a tree to hang morality on. The world desperately needs us to keep telling our story. The story of a God who made you special and loves you very much, who has a plan, a plan of salvation, a plan of redemption, who's calling us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. We can change the world because we're the ones with the story. Keep telling the story. Tell it to your kids. You can use resources like what's in the Bible, but you can also use great, their children's Bibles that tell the macro story, like Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible. She's backstage right now. I don't know if she has copies of her Bible, but if you don't have one, you should get one. Um, The Lifeway uh, curriculum, the Gospel Project for Kids, things that tell the macro story. We don't want to give kids just snapshots because the Bible isn't about Noah. The Bible isn't about Solomon. The Bible is about God. We need to tell kids the whole story of the Bible so they can build a spiritual foundation for a moral imagination. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast. Be sure to visit us at ERLC.com or subscribe to our podcast through iTunes or Google Podcast. And don't forget to tune in next week for a message from Senator James Lankford.